Yay old man. Happy New Year and welcome to a rather unexpected bonus episode of Yay, Nay or Meh presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host Colin Gaisley coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England and I really wasn't necessarily expecting to have to do another episode quite so quickly after the last one. But... In this strange time period with the festive cinema openings still happening and films being released on New Year's Day and all that kind of stuff and things haven't settled down into a regular pattern yet, I realised that the way the schedule would work out, the easiest way to watch the three films I want to watch at the cinema this week is to watch them on bank holiday Monday and Tuesday. And that meant I basically had the weekend free and the few days leading up to the weekend after Christmas and the New Year. So that meant I had the opportunity to tick off a lot of films I had on my to-watch list and the kinds of films I really need to get to before I really start digging in to my end of year shows. I have already started working on my top 10 films of the year list. I'm on at least my second draft of that. But I still have lots of films to get to in order to fully consider what I think are the best films of the year, release a list which I personally am happy with, you know, not, you know, I regress I missed that particular film. So I've got a lot of stuff on my plate, and I managed to get a lot of stuff watched in this post-Christmas, pre-New Year period. So in this episode, we have the American indie film Young Hearts, which I added to my list a couple of months ago, and very quickly showed up as one of the premieres on Sky Cinema, so... Since I could watch it with absolutely no effort, I checked that out. I've also watched the two Apple Plus TV music documentaries, which ended up on the 15 film long list for documentary Oscar. That is Todd Haynes' film, The Velvet Underground, as well as Billie Eilish, The World's a Little Blurry. And I also managed to tick off quite a few Netflix films. Two very, very strong Oscar contenders and a couple of Oscar potential films. So I have managed to check out the musical Tick, Tick, Boom, the very blunt satire Don't Look Up, Halle Berry's directorial debut in Bruised, as well as the Sandra Bullock starring film The Unforgivable. So that's a total of seven films I've managed to watch in the last few days, and that's more than enough to make up a full episode. So here I am, 
recording an extra episode before I even get to the first cinematic trips of the year. So, without further ado, let's get on with what will probably be another relatively long episode. Home Movies Young Hearts, which in some territories is apparently known as Thunderbolt in Mine Eye. Young Hearts isn't a great title, but I think it's better than Thunderbolt in Mine Eye. But regardless, Young Hearts is a lo-fi, low-budget American independent film. So, unsurprisingly, the Duplass brothers act as executive producers on it. But it is written and directed by Sarah Sherman and is co-directed with her brother, Zachary Ray Sherman, who actually has a decent CV as an actor. Zachary Ray Sherman was the lead of the well-regarded American indie film Cuck, and he was also a regular cast member on the reboot of 90210 and on the Netflix TV show Everything Sucks which perhaps not coincidentally also starred the male lead of this film, Quinn Liebling. But the Sherman siblings direct this low-key, low-budget film, which was apparently shot in the course of only 15 days, and most of the sets were Sarah Sherman's neighbours' houses. Yeah, it's that kind of film. In which a 14-year-old girl in Portland, Oregon, and Jeannie Tanasia Ajar finds herself hanging out alone for the first time with her 15-year-old brother's best friend, Quinn Liebling. They've only ever hang out as part of a wider group with Jeannie Tanasia Ajar's brother, Alex Jarman, being the linchpin, but now they are alone together and spending time together, romantic sparks start flying for this 14-year-old girl and this 15-year-old boy who have known each other all their lives. They've grown up across the street from each other in leafy Portland, Oregon. But now adult things are on the horizon. But with this new relationship and eventually a sexual component entering this very young romance. Societal pressures, peer group pressures, familial pressures start piling up on this young couple. So will this first blush of youthful romance end positively? This is such a low-key film. This is very lo-fi, very handheld. As I said, it was shot in 15 days, and it kind of shows. This is naturalism to the max. It struck me that just having young teenagers like this, I mean, a 14-year-old and a 15-year-old, just talking to each other, I mean, that awkward interactions of, I'm an acquaintance of you, but I don't really know you, so what are we going to talk about? And eventually, you know, attraction forms, you know, then they kiss and, and it eventually develops further. I mean, it's very, very awkward, but it's also kind of sweet. And it struck me 
that a 14-year-old and a 15-year-old talking together in a naturalistic way is basically mumblecore. I mean, that, I got such strong mumblecore vibes from this, which is unsurprising since the Duplass brothers are involved. But that hyper-naturalistic approach, basically this is a slice of life. And I think it, it's a good signpost as to where society is in 2019-2020. There is still a double standard about losing your virginity when you're 14, 15. I mean, everybody is talking about it. I mean, who's a virgin, who's not. For boys, it's a badge of honour. For girls, it's a signpost you're a slut. And that's still the case, even in the very liberal Portland, Oregon, even in 2019-2020. There's one throwaway line about essentially a 15-year-old girl getting sexually assaulted and nothing being done about it, and that's just the way things are. But, I mean, this it's not a harsh film in any way. I mean, it's like I said, it's rather gentle, rather sweet. I mean, when you know, the sex scene eventually happens, there are constant questions about how comfortable everybody is. There are constant questions about consent. You know, just making absolutely sure that everybody's okay with what's happening. And it's kind of adorable. And it feels very natural. And it, it's interesting exploring young teenagers like this. I mean, I think we rarely consider i mean this transitional period you know 14 15 years old bo burnham did it brilliantly in eighth grade but we rarely see young teenagers interacting like this and it's interesting observing from a distance i mean from far far in the future i mean in my personal life journey but seeing the difference that a year makes in high school. I mean, the fact that Angini Taneja Ajar is a freshman and Quinn Liebling is a sophomore is a huge, huge hurdle in their relationship. I mean, not least of which because Quinn Liebling is the brother Alex Jarman's best friend and, yeah, they live across the road from each other. But that single year in high school is absolutely vital. It means everything that this sophomore is dating a freshman. I mean, and two, three, four years down the line, that won't mean a damn thing. But right now, right here, it does mean something that that one year difference is absolutely crucial, is one of the major stumbling blocks. And you know, that kind of attitude still being important, even as these two young people are entering a sexual relationship with each other. I mean, the transitional period that this occupies, that it demonstrates, I think is fascinating. And in some ways, this is a somewhat interesting, as I say, somewhat adorable film. But... It is very, very slight. I mean, this is a slice of life 
in the grand scheme of things, not a great deal happens. I mean, apart from you know virginities being lost, that's about it. I mean, the big dramatic gestures aren't all that big and dramatic, and to some degree, life goes on. I mean, I think there is a difference between being a slight film and simply being vapor, just appearing for a moment and then vanishing into the ether. And that's kind of what this film does. So yes, I, I think on its own terms, it's kind of cute. But is there a point to it? I'm not exactly sure there is. I mean, I, I think it, it's so lightweight that it kind of evaporates. and. Yeah, I, I didn't have a bad time watching it. I mean, I'm glad I didn't end up paying for it. And on those terms, I mean, here in the UK, you can almost certainly still find it on Sky Cinema. And on those terms, I think it's a decent enough journey. I mean, it's only 80 minutes long. So yeah, I mean, it, it's small, it's slight, it's insignificant. Not a great deal happens. But it's cute enough. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's one of those things that I'm kind of interested to see the directions that the Sherman siblings' directing career goes in. I mean, apparently the, what they're filming at the moment is a Christmas movie, which will most certainly end up on TV. But either way, I think there's some interesting stuff here in this very low-fi, very low-key why it basically works on its own terms so i mean it's not the most passionate recommendation it's also not the most passionate decrying of this film it's just there and then it's not and on those terms i think young hearts and or thunderbolt in mine eye is a middle of the road okay meh the other streaming films I watched in this post-Christmas period were the two music documentaries which were released earlier in the year onto Apple Plus TV and then ended up on the 15-film long list for documentary feature Oscar, This Coming Ceremony. The first of which was The Velvet Underground, which I kind of expected to end up on the 15-film long list because it is directed by Oscar nominee Todd Haynes and is in fact the first feature-length documentary that Todd Haynes has produced. And it goes into the history of the legendary Velvet Underground band. I mean, what's that famous, famous quote? I mean, it's something along the lines of only five people bought the original Velvet Underground album, but they all went on to make fantastic bands of their own. And this talks about the foundation of the Velvet Underground in Andy Warhol's factory in New York in the 1960s, and the avant-garde world of pop art and music and modern music and everything that was happening in the psychedelic 60s. 
and it's being directed by Todd Haynes, who, not insignificantly, one of Todd Haynes's earlier big successes was The Velvet Underground, which is somewhat inspired by the life of Lou Reed and the whole Berlin scene that Transformer came out of. But this is very deliberately focused rigidly on the period of the formation of the Velvet Underground until they disbanded. And the one word I can use to describe this documentary, The Velvet Underground, is kaleidoscopic. This is a whirlwind of imagery, of ideas, of sounds, of music, obviously. All being thrown together, all being blended together. The film opens with a rapid fire montage. I mean, you sort of blink and you'll miss it images of, you know, the Kennedy assassination of suburbia, of advertising, of a panel show being sponsored by a cigarette company. A panel show which, by the way, John Cale was a part of, which I'll come back to in a minute. Interviews with Lou Reed, glimpses of Andy Warhol, all these things which were going on in the 1960s in the New York scene. I mean, somewhat different from the hippie scene which was going on in San Francisco at somewhat the same time period. But this avant-garde pop art world that Andy Warhol created or or was instrumental in being a part of, this is the world in which the Velvet Underground were formed. And avant-garde is the right term for us. I mean, one of the main purposes, as far as John Cale was concerned, I mean, this Welsh viola player who finds himself in New York in the early 1960s, He is very, very interested in avant-garde music, in the work of people like Philip Cage, but also in the droning music of Lamont Young, which will turn into the drone of tracks like Venus in Furs, something that John Cale was absolutely fascinated by. I mean, the harmonics of music and the harmonics of brainwaves, all this kind of stuff. I mean, all these new ideas to the extent that John Cale ended up on this panel show, you know, I've Got a Secret, and the secret that John Cale had is that he performed an 18-hour concert of Eric Satie's music, and there was one guy who lasted the entire 18 hours, and they both appeared on this panel show, I've Got a Secret, because Eric Satie's instruction was, you need to play this little refrain on the piano, 840 times. So that's what John Cale did, and one guy watched the whole thing. I mean, this kind of avant-garde approach is exactly what John Cale was bringing to the Velvet Underground. Lou Reed was bringing astonishing lyric writing, you know, talking about the dirty, the dangerous, the provocative things. I mean, writing a track like Heroin in what 1961, I think it was, or very, very early in the 60s, or even a track like Venus in First. I mean, these were just things you did not talk about. And yet Lou Reed was doing it. I mean, he wasn't the best musician, 
but he was a poet. And then you had the other original members of the Velvet Underground, Mo Tucker and Sterling Morrison, who were basically the talented musicians. I mean, I once heard the Manic Street Preachers described as two talented musicians, James Dean Bradfield and Sean Moore, and two ham-fisted amateurs with a political agenda, Nicky Wire and Richie Edwards. And that's almost the same thing you can say about the Velvet Underground. In terms of pure, approachable music, Sterling Morrison and Mo Tucker were the talented musicians. John Cale was talented, but he had these avant-garde ideas. And Lou Reed was competent, but he was much more a poet than anything else. Yet they all blended together into this velvet underground thing. Which was entirely, or or largely, the creation, the brainchild of Andy Warhol. I find it very, very significant that, at least in the early days, more often than not, the Velvet Underground were not booked as a music act. They were booked as an art installation by Andy Warhol. It was Andy Warhol's idea to bring in this German model, Nico, to appear on this album, who was stunningly beautiful, but with the best will in the world, was never the best singer. Yet Andy Warhol thought, well, we need some sex appeal, so let's just put this statuesque German blonde on stage with the band. And you know, everything that Andy Warhol did was for the sake of art. And that's very much the same way that John Cale was approaching it as an avant-garde art installation, almost. Until eventually, as is always the way with bands like this, creative tensions started building and Lou Reed gave an ultimatum to the other two members of the band. It's either John Cale or me. So John Cale was kicked out. And after that, the Velvet Underground started getting a lot more commercial, which seems to be something that Lou Reed actively wanted and pursued. He wanted to get more commercial. He wanted to get more pop orientated. And I find that absolutely fascinating, particularly considering what we know Lou Reed went on to do in Berlin with Bowie and Iggy Pop and all those kinds of people. I mean, that was, uh, yeah, that was quite something in Berlin in the 1970s. But anyway, all of this is fascinating stuff. And As I said, it's been done in this kaleidoscopic way. I mean, even the Talking Head interviews, I mean, the surviving members of the band, Mo Tucker and John Cale, are interviewed. Various friends and family of the other members of the band. Jonas Mikus, who was very much part of the whole factory scene in New York in the 1970s, he managed to give lengthy interviews before he recently died. So, yeah, I mean, there's lots of talking head interviews, but they're never shot in the usual way. I mean, they're always off to the side. They're always kind of split screen. And there's so much use of split screen in this. I mean, on one half of the screen, we've got, you know, images, you know, this kaleidoscope of images from the 1960s. And on the other half, we've got those 
films that Andy Warhol used to make. I mean, just staring at the face of somebody for you know, 5, 10, 15 minutes and just asking them to not do anything. And that's one of the things that Andy Warhol did. And these films exist. So that's how many of the band members are introduced. Uh, and the fact that one of the things about The Factory was that everything was getting filmed all the time means that there is some really interesting footage from those gatherings at the factory. To the extent that, I mean, as you want in a documentary like this, particularly a documentary which is focused specifically on one period of time, this is only about the period of time where the Velvet Underground was in existence and the the lead up to it. So we don't have on screen much stuff about what happened after the Velvet Underground, but they did manage to find some very, very old VHS-style footage of a conversation between a very ill Andy Warhol. It must have been only just before he died in 1987, but it's a conversation between Andy Warhol and Lou Reed and they're talking about the old days. They're talking about the Velvet Underground. Oh, yeah, whatever happened to Mo Tucker? And Lou Reed says, oh, she went off and did this. And, oh, whatever happened to Sterling Morrison? Oh, he went off and did this. And it's fascinating that this piece of footage, which already exists, which was just there, which was just being filmed for the sake of it, serves as a somewhat perfect capping points to this documentary about the Velvet Underground. I mean, and we also have a more traditional title card at the end, I mean, listing all the things which happened to all the various people in the, the film afterwards. But I did find it delightful that this film that exists, or this video that exists from, it must have been about 1987, serves as an epitaph for the band. And yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's interesting. I mean, I find it really, really fascinating that there was an intense rivalry between the Velvet Underground and Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention, who were doing somewhat similar things, but coming at it from very different perspectives. The record company thought, oh, well, let's put our efforts and our marketing behind the Mothers of Invention. And that's one of the reasons why the Velvet Underground was never a commercial success. But the band members, even today, Mo Tucker hates Frank Zappa, or seems to at least. And I find that really, really interesting. I like the thought that, to some degree, the Velvet Underground was not a band. It was an art project. And that's one of the things which I think comes across in this. But, yeah, it's a whirlwind of images. It's a whirlwind of ideas. It's a kaleidoscope. And at a certain point, you just have to hold on tight and just let it wash over you. I mean, I don't think this is a traditional documentary in the strictest sense of the term. But it's directed by Todd Haynes. It's the first time he's directed a feature-length documentary. So it ended up on the 15-film long list. I wouldn't be that surprised if it actually got an Oscar nomination for Best Feature Documentary. But it won't be one of my personal choices, I don't think. I've already watched some of the documentaries, including I haven't yet watched the really harrowing ones, which I'll be talking a little bit about later. But yeah, 
it, this was an experience, but I'm not sure how much of a filmmaking experience it was. So for me, I think The Velvet Underground, the documentary, is interesting, and it's a somewhat confusing, somewhat chaotic meh, as far as I'm concerned. The other Apple TV Plus music documentary which made it onto the 15 film long list was the Billie Eilish documentary The World's A Little Blurry. And before I talk about this documentary, I think it's worth the time to explain where I am coming from when I'm watching a film about Billie Eilish. I have long ago stopped paying attention to popular music. I have no idea what's in the charts. I have no idea what's popular. Most of the time, I only hear popular tracks through osmosis, you know, when they're used in adverts or trailers or television or whatever. So I am aware of Billie Eilish, but I came to Billie Eilish through a rather roundabout method. Long-term listeners will know that I am a fan of professional wrestling. And one of the things that the WWE does is that when they have a major show, a pay-per-view, they have a theme tune that you know, needs publicity or whatever. I mean, that's how I first heard Bring Me to Life by Evanescence back in the day was as the theme tune to a WWE pay-per-view. Corey Taylor from Slipknot is such a wrestling fan that both Slipknot's new material and Corey Taylor's solo stuff has appeared on NXT programming. And one of the times that the NXT brand of WWE had a pay-per-view. The theme tune was this very, very strange piece of music by somebody I'd never heard of called Billie Eilish. Now, I do not know if this is a well-known track, if this is a popular track. I looked up and it doesn't seem to have charted here in the UK, but this is the first time I heard Billie Eilish. This track is called You Should See Me in a Crown. And it was the theme tune to NXT New York about two or three years ago. So here's a clip of You Should See Me in a Crown by Billie Eilish. Bind my tongue, bind my time, wearing a warning sign, wait till the world is mine. Visions I vandalize, cold in my kingdom size, fell for these ocean eyes. You should see me in a crowd. I'm gonna win, there's nothing to help. Watch me make them bow one by one by one, one by one. Now, when I heard that as the theme tune to this wrestling show, I had several thoughts. 
Primarily, it was, that is really inappropriate music to be put into a wrestling show. I mean, because generally you want sort of fist-pumping, heart-pounding, energetic music, and that just doesn't put you in the right frame of mind for wrestling, as far as I'm concerned. So that was my primary thought. My second thought was, that is some really abstract, really jagged stuff. If I was still doing my music podcast, I might consider seeing if I can get my hands on it, if I could legally play it on a podcast. I mean, I probably couldn't have been able to, but I would have looked it up because I was interested in it. I was fascinated by it. But, I mean, I thought here's some sophisticated, unusual music. And uh, I did kind of dig it. It was only a couple of months later when I started hearing Bad Guy by Billie Eilish absolutely fucking everywhere that I realised, oh, hang on a minute, this is now mainstream. This is what the kids are listening to now. And it kind of impressed me, I have to say. I mean, Bad Guy is a really, really catchy track, it has to be said. But it is that sophisticated, unusual, strange music that doesn't have the regular beat, it doesn't have the regular rhythms to it. And yet this is now mainstream. So yeah, I, I, I'm i impressed by Billie Eilish, particularly when I started hearing Bad Girl Everywhere and started hearing, what, she's 17 years old and she wrote it herself? What the fuck? Yeah, I, I am... So, so impressed with Billie Eilish, but I am not massively familiar with her music. There is no way I would have bothered to watch this documentary if it hadn't ended up on the 15 film long list for documentary feature competition. A status which I don't necessarily think this film deserves. I mean, it's a music documentary, it's a tour documentary. How has it ended up on the 15 film long list? But that's something I'll be coming back to in a minute. But in the meantime, Billie Eilish, The World's a Little Blurry, documents a couple of years in the life of Billie Eilish as she builds up to the release of her first album, as she promotes her first album, as she goes on a couple of world tours, as she lives with her family in the same small house in Los Angeles she grew up with, with her brother, who is her collaborator and producer on all her music and basically the life of a 17 year old pop sensation and it's basically a tour documentary it's a music documentary and as is so often the case with modern music documentaries it's also a little bit about the price of fame this is a very very talented young woman who knows exactly what she wants i mean one of the earliest scenes we see her is she is meticulously blocking out what she wants in her latest music video And after this, she insists that she will direct all her music videos forthcoming, which, as far as I'm aware, she has done. But she knows exactly what she wants. She knows exactly how to get it. Writing songs with her brother, recording these world-topping chart hits in their 
bedroom that they've grown up in since they were kids. But also having all the pressures which come with being so famous and being 17 years old, suffering from Tourette's, which I wasn't aware of, and constantly being concerned about what the internet will think about you. And that is a genuine concern throughout the course of this film. I mean, being internet famous or starting out internet famous is a double-edged sword. There's one point where Billie Eilish herself says, I don't want to do that because the internet will hate me for it. And it's something pretty mundane, pretty every day. And there's also a very, very telling conversation with somebody who I think works at the marketing department of Interscope Records, who genuinely puts forth the question, do you really want to make such a strong anti-drugs and anti-tobacco message? Do you really want to put that out there in these interviews and on these websites? Because when you inevitably succumb to drugs, it will be used against you. And that's the way that the marketing people are approaching this. I mean, of course, she's eventually going to crash and burn. So we need to prepare for that years down the line. And that's such a fucked up way of looking at it. But that's exactly what this situation is. I think one of the most telling sequences in this entire film is just before Billie Eilish is about to go on stage in New York, she has some very, very bad news about her personal life. She is really not in a good mood, yet she has to go on stage in New York, to the extent that there's one sequence where Billie Eilish and her brother Phineas are on a floating bed together. I mean, beds are a whole part of her imagery. And they're on a floating bed together, and you can see that Phineas is constantly checking with his baby sister to check how okay she is, because she's clearly not okay. And Phineas seems to be checking me, do we need to stop this? Can she even continue performing? But it's actually kind of sweet just how concerned Phineas is about his baby sister. And then after this very emotionally harrowing concert, she is forced to do this meet and greet with dozens and dozens and dozens of people who are connected to the record label. Something which she does not want to do and tries to leave, but is forced to come back with these people she doesn't know, doesn't care about, are not genuine fans. They just work for the company. And, you know, hey, I've got a picture with Billie Eilish. So she does not want to do this. She's had very bad personal news earlier in the day. And she has to do this. If That is the price of fame. And in the middle of all of this, which she does not want to do, she has a Tourette's attack. She starts ticking. And nobody notices. That was just such a harrowing and a powerful moment. I mean, seeing this young girl 
being thrust into international superstar and having to deal with it. I mean, there's a brief moment where she openly talks about her history of self-harm. And, I mean, she does seem to have a very stable background and her parents and her brother are trying their best to make it as normal a life as possible. But she is an international superstar and that's just a very, very different way of life. I mean, there's some amazing juxtapositions in this film. One moment, Billy and Phineas are in real time writing the lyrics to Bad Guy. And that's a piece of footage which seems to have been self-shot. I mean, I'm guessing, I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing a lot of this stuff comes from Billy Eilish's social media accounts. But one minute, Billy and Phineas are in real time writing the lyrics to Bad Guy. The next moment, she's revising for her driving test. One minute, she's going off on an international stadium concert tour. The next moment, she's having her 17th birthday party at a local ice rink. Her 18th birthday party, by the way, was at the Grammys, but her 17th birthday party was at an ice rink. It's this really strange blending of a young girl and an international superstar. One of the most adorable things in this entire film is when she finally meets Justin Bieber face to face. Now, earlier in the film, we have seen a piece of video that Billie Eilish shot when she was 12 years old, where she talks about how she loves Justin Bieber so much that she is genuinely concerned that no boy she ever has a relationship will ever match up to how she feels about Justin Bieber. That is a piece of video she filmed when she was 12. And it's out there and she has shared it publicly. I mean, it comes up actually in an interview. So we know that Billie Eilish, when she was younger, loved Justin Bieber. There's even a talk with Billie's mother saying, yeah, she dragged us to all the Justin Bieber documentaries at the cinema. I think we even watched one of them on Christmas Day. You know, this is a strong, strong influence on the 12-year-old Billie Eilish. So when Billie Eilish actually meets Justin Bieber face-to-face, backstage at Coachella, which is fascinating, Billie Eilish absolutely loses her fucking mind. She cannot process the fact that Justin Bieber is standing in front of her, despite the fact she's just headlined Coachella the previous night, and yet she is absolutely freaking the fuck out over meeting Justin Bieber face-to-face. And even right at the end of the film, after the Grammys, after she has had an enormously successful night at the Grammys, she gets a FaceTime call from Justin Bieber and once again loses her fucking mind, despite having just swept the Grammys, basically. I mean, it's a really fascinating blending of a 17-year-old girl or 18-year-old girl and an international superstar. So, yes, I think 
there is some fascinating stuff here. But at the end of the day, this is just a tour documentary. It is just a music documentary. How much difference is there between this and one of the Justin Bieber documentaries or one of the BTS event things or what was that film that Madonna did back in the day? Truth or Dare. I mean, it's not an outstanding piece of filmmaking. It just isn't. It's interesting. In places, it's kind of tragic. It's also kind of heartwarming. It does show just how much of a, a genuine talent Billie Eilish is, but it's just a tour documentary. And yet it has ended up as one of the 15 film long list for documentary feature Oscar. And I think there are two reasons for this. One, it's on Apple TV+, Plus, therefore all the voting members will have easy access to it and will have seen it, and therefore it's easier to vote on. The other reason is the fact this is directed by R.J. Cutler. Now, he has directed the well-regarded documentaries The September Issue and Belushi, and he's also been nominated for a BAFTA and won a Primetime Emmy for producing the documentary Listen to Me, Marlon, made up of lots of cassette tapes that Marlon Brando recorded throughout his life. It's a a really interesting and somewhat depressing documentary. I mean, the self-image that that guy had was problematic. But yeah, Listen to Me, Marlon is a decent documentary, and R.J. Cutler produced it. So he's an established documentarian, and he released a documentary onto an easily accessible platform, and therefore he's ended up with a long list thing in the documentary feature category at the Oscars which I honestly don't think he deserves. I mean, I did appreciate this documentary. I did like this documentary. It is fascinating. It's all those things. But Oscar-worthy? Absolutely not. This is entertainment. This is not art, as far as I'm concerned. And at least to some degree, I think an Oscar-worthy documentary needs to be art. And this isn't. It's perfectly fine. I did like it. I did enjoy it. But for me, Billie Eilish, The World's a Little Blurry, available through Apple TV+, Plus, is only a meh. Netflix and chill. Tick, tick, boom is a musical released on Netflix and is the directorial debut of Lin-Manuel Miranda. Although this is not one of his own projects, one of his own myriad projects. Instead, this is Lin-Manuel Miranda directing a musical that was written by Jonathan Larson. Now, if you don't know the name Jonathan Larson, he has an incredible story. He's the guy who wrote Rent and in doing so, completely changed the face of musical theatre forever. However, 
Jonathan Larson never lived to see the success that Rent would become. The day before the first public performance of Rent, Jonathan Larson died of an aneurysm due to an undiagnosed genetic medical condition. That's just such a perfect tragedy in a lot of ways. But yeah, Jonathan Larson completely changed musical theatre, but he never saw it come to fruition. The one minor success he had during his own life was this autobiographical musical, Tick, Tick, Boom. He initially presented it as largely a one-man show. Basically, it was Jonathan Larson on stage with a piano and a small rock band. And using this minimalist setup, he told an autobiographical story of struggling to write a musical, a musical he had been working on for roughly eight years with no success. The fact that he is rapidly approaching 30 at this point is starting to weigh heavy on him. The pursuit of art in the face of not having enough money, in the face of not having strong relationships or allowing relationships to crumble. The pressures of the artistic process, and that's basically what Tick, Tick, Boom was all about. And in the aftermath of the success of Rant and the death of Jonathan Larson, this largely one-man show which Jonathan Larson produced earlier in his career was revamped into a full stage musical and it went on to a decent amount of success. But Lin-Manuel Miranda performed in a briefly held revival of Tick, Tick, Boom in 2014. And it seems that this was enough for Lin-Manuel Miranda to make this his directorial filmmaking effort in restaging this musical and largely also the one-man show by Jonathan Larson. In this film version, Jonathan Larson is being played by Andrew Garfield, who is struggling to write this epic sci-fi dystopian musical and not paying enough attention to his long-suffering girlfriend, Alexandra Shipp, or his childhood best friend slash ex-roommate, Robin de Jesus. But he must get this musical done. He's just about to have a showcase for it. And in the lead-up to this showcase, he is letting a lot of stuff slide. But he is getting occasional encouragement from his mentor, the legendary Broadway figure Stephen Sondheim, who unfortunately recently died and in the film is being played by Bradley Whitford. So with the occasional encouragement of Stephen Sondheim, Jonathan Larson is desperately trying to get this workshop ready and live with the fact that many of his friends are dying of AIDS, which will eventually become the crucial factors in rent. So this is a multi-layered approach to this material. We do have 
the one-man show kind of set up with Andrew Garfield on stage with a piano and a band, the female singer of whom is Vanessa Hudgens, as well as the more structured reality of life in New York as Jonathan Larson is working in this diner to try and make ends meet, interacting with his long-suffering girlfriend and best friend. There's lots and lots of layers to this, and basically all of them work. I really, really appreciated this film. I I really liked what Lin-Manuel Miranda did with this material. It's clear that Jonathan Larson was a very, very talented songwriter. I mean, many of these songs are excellent. And Andrew Garfield is a decent enough singer. He can certainly hold his own. Unfortunately, compared to longtime Broadway star Robin DeJesus and pop starlet Vanessa Hudgens, there's a duet that Andrew Garfield and Vanessa Hudgens do, which is a brilliant song, very funny. Not insignificantly, it reminded me strongly of the work of Stephen Sondheim, but this song, which is apparently called Therapy, is very, very good, very, very funny. But Andrew Garfield singing into duet with Vanessa Hudgens, he doesn't quite hold up, but he holds up better than you have any right to expect. So having this one-man show going on, as well as the more realistic, you know, on-the-streets-of-New-York stuff, and occasionally fantasy sequences. I mean, there's a sequence where Andrew Garfield and Robin DeJesus basically break into a full-on song and dance number with elaborate costumes and everything like that. There's a sequence which takes place at this diner that Jonathan Larson works at, which eventually turns into a large and elaborate set piece. And that scene is chock full of Broadway legends, including a director's cameo by Lin-Manuel Miranda. But many of the original cast of Rent are in that scene, as well as many other Broadway legends, singing this song about Sunday brunch at a diner. And eventually the whole side of the diner breaks away and everybody's doing elaborate staging outside this diner. So there's lots of different stuff going on. And all of it comes together really, really well. And yeah, I mean... The life of Jonathan Larson is incredible, and I think this is a very fitting tribute to it. I mean, I love the opening title card of this film, which says, Everything you are about to see is true, apart from the bits Jonathan made up, which I think is a perfect way of describing it. And it also has an acknowledgement right at the start that this is not going to end well. I mean, there's a voiceover from Alexandra Shipp that, if you are not aware, it does hint at the fact that Jonathan Larson is not going to survive this. And there's you know, a nice tribute at the end and another voiceover from Alexandra Ship. And, yeah, getting to see the bits at the edges of Tick, Tick, Boom. I mean, basically, Tick, Tick, Boom is a musical about struggling to be an artist and the pressures of being an artist. You know, the fact that if you don't have a day job, you possibly can't do it. 
the decision you need to make. I mean, do I pursue my artistic ambitions despite the fact I'm starving in this crappy apartment or do I sell out and get a big corporate job like eventually Robin de Jesus does? There's a genuine question. It's a genuine debate. I mean, can I and will I pursue my artistic endeavours even if it will give me a harder life? How do I get the money to be an artist? I mean, it's a catch-22. You you need money to be an artist, but you can only make money if you are an artist. It's It's the dichotomy. It's the constant dichotomy. And even with the encouragement, the occasional encouragement of Stephen Sondheim, I mean, Bradley Whitford has got the mannerisms of Stephen Sondheim down perfectly, and every time that Stephen Sondheim, as played by Bradley Whitford, is on screen, everybody defers to him. I mean, there's a brilliant sequence where you know, a, a colleague of Stephen Sondheim, I, I believe is was being played by Richard Friend, but... You know, he makes a statement, and then Stephen Sondheim disagrees, and Richard Friend immediately says, oh yes, well of course that's what I meant. I mean, everybody defers to the great Sondheim. Particularly about this putative musical that Jonathan Larson has been working on for about eight years. And the bits and pieces we hear and see of this musical, if that is accurate to what Jonathan Larson wrote in about 1988, it is remarkably prescient about where the social media internet age has come. I mean, possibly it was rewritten a little bit by Lin-Manuel Miranda in the meantime, but if that is at all accurate as to what Jonathan Larson wrote in 1988, it's remarkably prescient. And it sounds like a decent enough musical. It's just way too expensive to put on at the time. So it never got done. I mean, it was a failure. And on the back of that failure, Jonathan Larson wrote Tick, Tick, Boom and eventually wrote Rent. But yeah, the constant struggle of being an artist and putting enormous pressure on your relationship to the long-suffering Alexandra Ship. I do kind of want to be with you, but my work, my art will always take priority. Can you live with that? I mean, it's basically the the way it goes. And his friendship with Robin de Jesus, they've known each other since they were kids. They moved to New York together. Yeah, we want to go to make it on Broadway. Eventually, Robin de Jesus gave up and got himself a very well-paid corporate job. And the friendship has started to suffer at a point where it really doesn't need to happen. I mean... I have to say that Robin de Jesus is really, really good in this. I was enormously impressed with him in The Boys in the Band last year, and now seeing him again in this, I honestly think a Best Supporting Actor nomination is not out of the realm of possibility for Robin de Jesus. I was very, very impressed with him. I mean, the way he has to portray the hurt best friend, I mean, you need to you know, keep our friendship alive. You need to pay attention to me. Yes, I know you've got this very, very important showcase, but that doesn't mean you need to completely ignore me when I'm going through some very important personal stuff at the same time. And the way that Robin de Jesus plays it is excellent. 
And I also think that Andrew Garfield is a good shout for best actor as well. Yes, he's a good enough singer, but as an actor, I think Andrew Garfield really puts something into this film. The way he portrays the single-minded determination that I will put something out there, I will make a mark. And every now and again, he knows that he isn't spending enough time, he isn't paying enough attention to Alexandra Ship or Robin Dezus. To some degree, he knows it, but he can't help but be consumed by this musical, particularly when he knows there's one song he hasn't yet written and he can't write. He's got severe writer's block. And the great Stephen Sondheim has told him, look, that character needs a new song at that point in the musical. So he takes Sondheim's word as gospel and he can't write it and he's struggling to write it. I mean, even right up to the last minute when Vanessa Hudgens is trying to put this out there in this musical showcase that he's putting on, he hasn't written it. And that is the the main thrust of this entire film. I mean, desperately trying to write this song as he is just about to turn 30, as he is just about to put this showcase on for you know the great Sondheim and all the Broadway producers. The pursuit of art and what that costs, I mean both emotionally and physically, you know, the money it costs. It's really important to see. And in the background, there's the AIDS pandemic. I mean, there's casual mention of somebody's T cell count. I mean, and if you know your stuff, that's a huge red flag. I mean, the fact that, you know, he says at one point, I've been to eight people's funerals in the past two years and nothing was being done. Ronald Reagan has so much blood on his hands for so many reasons. But anyway, the single-minded determination he has, the confidence he has that he will be this big success. He knows that he's going to do it. It's impressive to see but it's also somewhat selfish and you are definitely not always on Jonathan Larson's side on Andrew Garfield's side in this film and I think that's an important balancing act that Andrew Garfield manages to pull off very very well so yeah Andrew Garfield as best actor honestly I think best supporting actor for the eyes of Tammy Faye as well I mean, that film's coming out in a couple of months, and I've already seen it at the Film Bath Festival, but playing Jim Baker in the eyes of Tammy Faye, I think Andrew Garfield was excellent in that as well. And there's a blockbuster appearance, which you probably know about already, but just in case, I'm not going to say, but that was nice to see. So yeah, it's a a nice moment in time for Andrew Garfield. But regardless of anything else, I think the film itself is exceptional the songs are fantastic jonathan larson was incredibly talented the staging of it i mean this layer upon layer of stuff i mean the the naturalism and the realism of just living on the streets of new york the occasional flights of fancy with you know big elaborate dance scenes in the lobby of apartment blocks and the side of the diner coming off i mean the big staging of it and the quiet intimate one-man show kind of approach that Tick Tick Boom originally was. 
All of it works together well. All of it blends together well. It tells the story as it needs to be told. And it tells it really, really well. The way that Lin-Manuel Miranda put this together, I mean, I've always been incredibly impressed with him as a songwriter and a performer. But as a director, I think he's got genuine talent. And I'm not sure if this is a really good idea or a really bad idea, but I would kind of like to see what Lin-Manuel Miranda would do if he directed a film that wasn't a musical. I think that would be kind of interesting, but I mean, I, as I said, I don't know if that's a terrible idea or a great idea, but anyway, as a director, I think Lin-Manuel Miranda is excellent, and all around, I think this film is excellent. I thoroughly recommend it. I do think it's got a good chance of getting a Best Picture nomination, if nothing else, and certainly Best Actor for Andrew Garfield. But regardless of anything else, I really, really enjoyed it, and I do thoroughly recommend it. So, on Netflix, Tick, Tick, Boom ends up being a yay. The other major Oscar contender that I saw on Netflix in this time period was Don't Look Up. The new film from Adam McKay, who has previously bought us The Big Short and Vice. This is another politically charged and somewhat blunt satire, even though in this case it's about a fictional story, even though the tagline is based on truly possible events. And I have to say, unfortunately, I think it's true. In this film, Mild-mannered professor with anxiety issues, Leonardo DiCaprio, and his grad student, Jennifer Lawrence, are working at a telescope one night when they see in the sky a comet. And after doing all the calculations surrounding this comet, they realise that in six months, this comet will hit Earth, and it is so large, all life on Earth will end. This is about two or three times the size of the comet which destroyed the dinosaurs. This is a planet killer. So, horrified by this and the fact that in six months, the entire human population of the world is going to die, Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence, and the head of the Space Defence Force, Rob Morgan, go to the presidents of the United States, Meryl Streep, trying to say, look, in six months, the world is going to end. But Meryl Streep and her son slash chief of staff, Jonah Hill, don't give a shit about this because the optics are bad and they need good publicity because of various sex scandals and idiotic decisions that this non-professional president, Meryl Streep, has put out there. So desperate to try and get the word out there that the world is going to end in six months, Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence go on a morning news show hosted by Tyler Perry and Kate Blanchett and try and get the word out, but they are made a mockery of and nobody believes them until it's far too late. 
and everybody is constantly being distracted by various things. The president's latest absurd scandal, the fact that hot singer Ariana Grande is on again and off again with her boyfriend Kid Cudi, the fact that a tech billionaire has just released a new product which knows your mind better than you do. When you see something in television and you think about it, it will buy something for you. Just reading your mind, and this is seen as a good thing. But Mark Rylance has just released this. So there's all different kinds of stuff to distract from the fact that in six months, the world is coming to an end. But will anybody believe it? And will anybody care about it? And in Adam McKay's mind, nobody will. I mean, this is as blunt as a sledgehammer. This is a biting satire about the apathy and the distraction of the world, and particularly the American population. The fact that we have this new technology which will buy stuff for you in your pocket. And Mark Rylance releasing it, I mean, playing Steve Jobs times a thousand. It said at the beginning when Mark Rylance is introduced, you know, don't make eye contact, don't make sudden moves, don't touch him. And he's got this very quiet, soft-spoken way about him. But if you get on his wrong side, he will destroy you with a whisper. I mean, it's a brilliant performance from Mark Rylance. I mean, a very over-the-top performance from Mark Rylance, but still a brilliant performance from Mark Rylance. This idiot president, played by Meryl Streep, and her idiot son slash chief of staff. I mean, the first time we see Jonah Hill in the Oval Office, he's constantly sniffing and rubbing his nose. I mean, how much white powder has just gone up there? The president is an idiot and a former reality TV star. Where have we seen that before? It's revealed later in the film in a sequence which there is a reason for this to be revealed, but it is revealed at a certain point that Meryl Streep has a tramp stamp, which I thought was a nice little touch. I like the fact that everybody is so concerned about the relationship status of this singer Ariana Grande that nobody cares about this comet which is coming towards Earth. But it does set up the film for what turns out to be a brilliant song performed by Ariana Grande and Kid Cudi, which I think I'm actually going to play at the end of this podcast. It has made it onto the long list for best song at the forthcoming Oscars. I mean, I've been saying for a couple of months that I thought you know, Lin-Manuel Miranda had three opportunities to get onto the list for best song at the Oscars this year. He didn't make it at all, which surprised me. But this song from Don't Look Up did. And it's actually kind of brilliant. I mean, it starts out as this duet between Ariana Grande and Kid Cudi makes a radical left turn in the second half, which I really, really liked and fits in perfectly with the themes of this film. The ideas of credulity, I mean, the ideas of ignoring empirical facts because they disagree with your political points of view. I mean, that's ultimately what this film boils down to. There's even a scene where, you know, hard-line right-wing people 
who have been told this lie. I mean, they realise empirically they've been lied to and instantly turn. And actually, that's the one part of this film I don't believe. I mean, when you are that ingrained in your beliefs, seeing something in front of you which disagrees with those beliefs, I don't think you would change your mind that instantly. I, mean, I think Adam McKay has a little bit more faith in humanity than I do, but he still has very, very little faith in humanity. I mean, this is an apocalyptic film. The stupidity, the stubbornness, the blinkered belief systems of people will destroy the Earth. And that is basically what Adam McKay believes. I actually had a rather nice experience watching this film. I mean, I started watching it with my brother on New Year's Eve. I mean, neither of us go out. We haven't gone out for years. We just can't be asked anymore. So it's usually a quiet night indoors to see the New Year in. And we started watching this film because both of us wanted to see it. And we managed completely accidentally to time the watching of this film perfectly. So at the climactic moments of this film, the fireworks were going on outside. This is how I saw in 2022. And it was a nice moment seeing, you know, big explosions on screen at the same time that the fireworks were going on across the valley outside. So yeah, that was a nice moment. And I think this is an interesting film. We have very, very blunt approaches here. Adam McKay, as I said, has zero faith in humanity. He puts out this film, he writes this script. I mean, he does a similar thing to what he did in The Big Short. I mean, there's a caption which comes up when Rob Morgan comes on screen. You know, he's the NASA's head of planetary defense, you know, near Earth objects, all that kind of stuff. I mean, and he comes up on screen this organization actually exists. Here's their logo. So he does that kind of thing. I mean, it's the typical Adam McKay thing. Uh, and having this satirical viewpoint on the idiocy of humanity at this point in time. And showing it through montages. I mean, regularly throughout the course of the film, we have montages showing the world at large. I mean, lots of sequences of people around the world, uh, animals around the world. It kind of reminded me of those Philip Glass films, you know, Koyanis Katsi from what, early 90s, late 80s, I think that was. I mean, I think he did three of them in the end. But these montages of the world functioning and, you know, even managing to put satirical moments in there. I mean, there's a flash up, you know, stock market at its highest ever levels. And then a couple of images later, stock market crashes to unprecedented levels. I mean, the idiocy of finance, amongst other things, is is part of this as well. But these constant montages, constantly reminding us, constantly letting us see the world happening, all these different things, all these different animals, all these different people around the world, and seeing how they are affected, how belief structures affect. I mean, eventually you can see the comet in the sky. So the mantra becomes, just look up. You can see for yourself that there is a comet coming. And instantly, Meryl Streep's campaign slogan when she's trying to get re-elected as president is, don't look up, which is where the film comes, the title of the film comes from. And 
the blinkered attitude. I mean, if you can just look up in the sky and see for yourself the truth, but you are not going to because you have been told to by somebody whose political beliefs align with yours, what has the world come to? And that's ultimately the question that Adam McKay is asking. What has the world come to? I like the fact that towards the end of the film, there is to, uh, an appearance from Timothy Chalamet as a performatively nihilistic teenager who forms a, a somewhat odd yet somewhat sweet bond with Jennifer Lawrence. It's a relationship which starts out in a, a bit of a weird place. But yeah, I mean, the, the generational gaps in this film are, are somewhat interesting. And it's kind of depressing to realise that's even a factor. I mean, Jennifer Lawrence has been with us for such a long time. But yeah, I mean, there's some generational stuff going on there. But it's still kind of sweet. But the idea that this performatively nihilistic teenager is part of this, and he has more layers than you would anticipate as well. So yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on here. But it is blunt as hell. It is hitting you over the head like a sledgehammer. I mean. Can you see what the world has come to? Can you see we are going to destroy ourselves? And I, I got the impression, I mean, this is kind of like what I feel about a Spike Lee film nowadays. I mean, Spike Lee doesn't put any punches, is incredibly blunt, but he gets his point across, as does Adam McKay in this film. It is incredibly blunt. But I do think these are points worth making. It's a film worth paying attention to. And I do think it's really, really good. I mean, I loved Don't Look Up. I think it's one of my films of the year, actually. I think I was that impressed with it. I like it enough that I mean, that's the reason why I now have two drafts of my top 10 films of the year list. Let's just put it like that. So, I mean, as if there was any doubt, for me, Don't Look Up on Netflix is a yay. I thoroughly recommend it. The next film I watched on Netflix was Halle Berry's directorial debut in Bruised, which is somewhere on the list of Oscar potentials, according to Gold Derby. So, I decided, what the hell, let's watch this film which stars Halle Berry as a disgraced former MMA fighter who four years since her last humiliating fight is trying to make ends meet as a cleaner in Newark, New Jersey, a cleaner who has a cleaning bottle always with her full of bourbon and living with an inappropriate and somewhat violent manager-slash-boyfriend played by Aidan Canto. Suddenly, her life is thrown into chaos when her pill-popping estranged mother, Adrienne Lennox, dumps on her doorstep Halle Berry's six-year-old son played by Danny Boyd Jr. Years ago, Halle Berry dumped her child with the child's father in Miami and hasn't seen him since. But now, 
this boy's father has been shot and killed in Miami, and with nowhere else to go, Halle Berry, for the first time ever really, is a mother to this six-year-old boy. So how is she going to make that work? She decides that the best thing to do is try and get back in the ring. So with the encouragement of a somewhat shady fight promoter played by Shamir Anderson, she goes to a nearby gym and starts being trained by a trainer, Sheila Atim. And her road to redemption, her path to redemption, is going to culminate with a title fight in a minor MMA promotion, which is actually a real female MMA promotion. And her opponent is going to be the UFC legend Valentina Shevchenko, as far as I'm aware, making her acting debut in this film. So will Halle Berry make it to the big fight? Will she become a better mother? Will she find peace on the path of redemption? I mean, you've seen Rocky, haven't you? And if you've seen Rocky, you've basically seen this film. I mean, this is a film that is absolutely 100% going through the motions. It is ticking off all the points on the Road to Redemption sporting underdog story. You know, the alcoholic who needs to clean up. I mean, the training montages. I mean, trying so hard you throw up. Having this shady fight promoter, Shamir Anderson, encourage you to get angry and encouraging you to completely lose control you have the calming zen approach i mean literally zen approach of the trainer sheila at him who's very into meditation and chanting calls herself buddha khan you know finding a path back from the darkness finding a way to be a mother to this boy who does not want to be dumped in newark new jersey when he was perfectly happy living in Miami. I mean, this pill-popping mother, this violent boyfriend, who it doesn't seem is ever physically violent towards Halle Berry, or certainly doesn't punch her or anything, but, I mean, the one sex scene between Aidan Canto and Halle Berry, it's a little bit uncomfortable because it's it's more violent than it needs to be. I mean, a blending of violence and sex, which is a little bit uncomfortable. But at that point in the story, I mean, you kind of get the impression that's the only thing that Halle Berry thinks she deserves, is this kind of you know, being used, for want of a better term. But she still has to be a mother to this six-year-old boy. I mean, this silent six-year-old boy. I mean, throughout the entire course of the film, this young actor, Danny Boy Jr., basically doesn't say a word. Uh, it's actually a pretty good performance for from a young actor who's been in a couple of things I've seen before. He was in the TV version of Watchmen. He was in the Underground Railroad. I mean, he's a good young actor and functionally silent throughout the course of this film. But, I mean, it's all the things that you expect from this basic setup from Halle Berry. I mean, there's so little character development. We just go from moment to moment. We're essentially ticking off the boxes that we need to have the Road to Redemption underdog sports movie. 
There's some very, very dark stuff about Halle Berry's past, which is brought up in one scene and never raised again when maybe it should have been. There's some lesbian content in this, which I honestly don't object to, but it needed to be handled better. I I think there needed to be a little bit more build-up. I mean, any build-up at all to the suggestion that this might have been on the cards. And also the timing of it, I found very, very problematic. The position in the film that that lesbian interaction happens I really do not think that the characters were physically or emotionally ready for that to happen. It it definitely needed a much, much better build-up. And then you spent a solid 20 minutes in the climactic fight scene. I mean, Halle Berry, or maybe Halle Berry's stunt doubles, do a decent enough job of putting the MMA moves together and when you are in the ring with you know the legendary MMA fighter Valentina Shevchenko I mean she is dominant in the current UFC standings I mean I don't watch MMA but my brother does so I, I got some tidbits from him and you know Valentina Shevchenko is a, an absolute legend at the moment and earlier in the film, we have you know, other real MMA fighters. Like there's this woman, Gabby Garcia, who's an enormous Brazilian woman. I mean, very, very tall, very, very big, you know, very square jawed. Apparently, she is so much bigger than most other female MMA fighters. It's a struggle to find suitable opponents for her in a world where weight divisions really, really do matter. But, you know, Gabby Garcia has a cameo in this, if you know your MMA. And, as I said, it is a real company. And, you know, using the rings and everything from this company, Invicta, I mean, it's a minor league MMA company to the extent that 90% of their champions have vacated their championships in order to be signed by UFC. It's that kind of company, but it is a real company and you have really famous MMA fighters like Valentina Shevchenko in there and some genuine UFC licensing, which I think was interesting. So, yeah, this is a film which runs on rails. It's too long. It's well over two hours long and it really doesn't need to be. It's ticking off boxes of the things we need to do for this kind of underdog sports movie and not having nearly enough character development including not doing any work at all in my opinion to set up the lesbian sex scene the timing of that i have such an issue with i mean the when it happens in the film i really really don't think was appropriate so yeah it's It's not a good film. I mean, ultimately, that's what I come down on. It is not a good film. Even if all you want out of it is an underdog sports movie, it's not a good film. I think 
Halle Berry as director is a little bit of a mixed bag. I really, really like the fact that this humiliating defeat four years ago, we only ever see it as a POV shot. We only ever see it from Halle Berry's point of view. That was a really, really interesting decision, a really cool decision. There's other places we think, oh, you know, the use of extreme close-ups in that particular situation, nice choice. I mean, it may gives an immediacy to it. But equally, there are moments where I think, Director Berry, you really, really didn't need to use a handheld camera for that particular shot. It just muddies things significantly. You didn't need to do that. So a mixed bag, but I think there's some definite potential here as director. I mean, you know, Holly Berry's past 50 and now she decides to direct it. Yeah, I think there were lessons learned here. And I think if she decides to do it again, I will be interested to see because I'm betting she would improve. I mean, there's definite sparks here and there as director for Halle Berry. But as a film, this just isn't worth it. It's not a good film. It's not even a good cheesy underdog sports movie. So for me, Bruised on Netflix ends up being a nay. I mean, it's not a massively passionate nay, but it's still a nay. I just don't think Bruised is worth it. And the final film I watched on Netflix this week is another one that is on the lists for Oscar potential, but really doesn't have much of a hope. But it has an interesting premise and interesting people behind it, so I thought, why not? Let's check out The Unforgivable, starring Sandra Bullock which is a remake of a 2009 British miniseries called Unforgiven, starring Suran Jones and written by the legendary British TV writer Sally Wainwright. This basically follows the same premise as that three-part miniseries from 2009, but it's done as a feature film starring Sandra Bullock and directed by Nora Fingscheidt the German director whose last film was System Crasher, the film that Germany submitted to the Oscars two years ago now and introduced the world to the awesome child actor Helena Zengel. System Crasher is a painful film to watch. It's a harrowing film to watch in certain ways, but it is brilliant. And now Nora Fingscheidt has decided to make a film in English, as is so often the case with foreign directors. And she decided to make this film, The Unforgivable, in which Sandra Bullock has just been released from prison after serving a 20-year sentence for killing a sheriff in Washington state. She is being released into Seattle, where she is living in a halfway house and has to work a crappy minimum wage job as a fish packing plant because even though she's a qualified carpenter as an ex-con nobody wants her around particularly not wanting her around are the sons of the sheriff she killed played by will pullen and tom guyry who are planning to even get violent with this woman who doesn't deserve to be walking free while their father ended up dead so while these 
angry young men are in the background and potentially looking to harm Sandra Bullock. She starts a tentative relationship with somebody else who works at this fish factory played by John Bernthal, interacts with the cold and distant and cynical parole officer played by Rob Morgan, who's appearing in a lot of stuff recently. But what Sandra Bullock really, really wants to do is reconnect with her baby sister. Her much, much younger sister, who was five years old when Sandra Bullock was sent to prison and was adopted into a new family with father Richard Thomas and mother Linda Amond. And this now teenage girl, Ashling Franciosi, also has a sister, Emma Nelson. And Ashling Franciosi knows nothing about her background. I mean, she knows she was adopted, but she doesn't know that her much older sister has been desperately trying to contact her all these years. Sandra Bullock has sent so many letters to her baby sister, none of which have actually got through to her because Ashling Franciosi's parents have protected her from this fact. So, completely unaware that her older sister, you know, her mother figure essentially, has just been released from prison, Ashling Franciosi goes about her daily business, despite the fact she's having constant dreams and flashbacks about what happened when she was a baby. But that is being completely ignored and overlooked by her family. But will Sandra Bullock manage to connect with her baby sister and put her family back together, which is all she ever really wants? And I can see both why this was a successful miniseries starring Saran Jones. I mean, Saran Jones and Sally Wainwright, I mean, that's some excellent pedigree when it comes to British television. And I also understand why people wanted to adapt it into a feature film. I mean, apparently this has been in development hell since at least 2010. And originally, Angelina Jolie was tapped up to appear in it, but she had no interest in it. So eventually it's gone down to Sandra Bullock and Nora Fingshite. But yeah, I mean, the idea that once you are a convict, particularly once you are a cop killer, you will never, ever be allowed to forget that. You will never, ever have a normal life. You might have served your time, but people will not and cannot let you forget the worst thing that you ever did. And you're just going to have to live with that. And you're just going to have to live with the fact that you might not ever reconnect with your baby sister, which is all you want to do. There are so many roadblocks, both personal and legal, in the way between Sandra Bullock reconnecting with Ashling Franciosi. Having to deal with that on a daily basis, having to deal with the fact you are hated, you are reviled by everybody around you. There are people out there who want to do you literal, genuine, physical harm. I mean, these two angry young men whose father was killed, they're a genuine threat. And seeing them play it out, I mean, 
I don't know if this was in the script or if they had to work around it, but one of these young men has a facial palsy where part of his face is, is paralyzed. And he says, you know, the medication I'm on has given me this. And it's probable that they just had to write around the fact that the actor had Bell's palsy or something at the time. But it still shows that, you know, just how angry and just how frustrated these young men are. I mean, their lives were taken away and every single bad thing in their life. And their lives are pretty bad. I mean, not the worst lives you've ever seen on screen, but they're pretty bad. And every single bad thing in their life is the direct responsibility of Sandra Bullock. So they are going to make her pay. And that anger, simply for existing, is really, really palpable to see. I mean, the fact that you can never, ever, ever escape your past is basically what this comes down to. And Sandra Bullock plays it remarkably well. I think the taciturn attitude that she has, I mean, she just doesn't for a second understand the fact that John Burnsall is basically flirting with her as soon as they meet each other. I mean, on this fish packing line, John Burnsall is casually flirting with her, but Sandra Bullock just doesn't recognise it, doesn't realise it, because she's never had that experience. I mean, she spent half her life in jail, as she says at one point, and she's just not picking up on this at all. And the tentative relationship that develops between those two people until eventually Sandra Bullock must tell him the truth. Look, I'm just out of jail. I am a cop killer. Can you deal with this? And yeah, it's that's just one of many, many things which you are going to have to deal with. I mean, you have to tell people the truth eventually. And what happens when you do? And usually not good things happen when you tell the truth. So how can you live your life like that? And the way that plays out i think is brilliantly handled by sandra bullock i mean i don't think sandra bullock's been this good since gravity quite honestly the way her life has gone the way she has to simply exist she has to simply go through the motions with this paw hanging over her this knowledge hanging over from everybody around her and the past is never buried no matter how hard you try to deal with your past, no matter how hard you try to bury your past. I mean, the fact that Ashling Franciosi's parents have not told her anything about her background, despite the fact she is constantly having nightmares, despite the fact she started having flashbacks, she has been told nothing about the first five years of her life. And... You just can't live your life like that. You can't protect yourself like that. Bad things are going to happen. And by the end of this film, bad things do happen. I mean, it does get a little bit over the top, a little bit out of control by the end. And I mean, I'm assuming this was in the original three-part miniseries, but in a three-part miniseries, I think you can build up to that a little bit more gradually. In a film, it suddenly gets really bad. and. I, I'm not sure if that 100% works, but it's still 
got some really interesting ideas about living with and not being able to live with your past, not being able to atone for your mistakes, not being allowed to atone for your mistakes. And as I said, a brilliant performance from Sandra Bullock. And I think The Unforgivable is a decent enough film. It didn't wow me or anything. I think Sandra Bullock might sneak into my list as best actress. But other than that, I think this is a solid, unspectacular, pretty hard going in places, meh. I think that's a decent enough film and you know, a decent enough option on Netflix. So yeah, The Unforgivable for me was a meh. Coming attractions. So with that somewhat unexpected extra episode out of the way, full steam ahead into the first cinematic trips of 2022 with three films out that were released on New Year's Day. Paul Thomas Anderson's new film, Licorice Pizza, the eccentric British biopic, The Electrical Life of Lewis Wayne, and Joel Cohen going solo for his latest directorial effort in The Tragedy of Macbeth. Those are the three cinema trips I plan to make in the forthcoming week. There's also a lot of stuff still on my streaming list, including stuff that I didn't realise was out yet that I have to add because of Oscar considerations. I didn't realise that the new Aaron Sorkin film, Being the Ricardos, had already been released. This is a biopic of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, played by Nicole Kidman and Javier Bardem, as they struggle through personal and political complications of the life during the enormously successful run of I Love Lucy. That has been released onto Amazon Prime recently, and I didn't realise it already come out, so that's been added to the list. As has the documentary The First Wave, which has made it onto the 15 film long list, and I'm really not looking forward to because it documents what life was like in a New York hospital during the first wave of the COVID 19 pandemic. So that's going to be incredibly fun to watch, particularly since I saw 127 Days, the Chinese version last year for the oscar shortlist but this one the first wave has been directed by matthew heineman who is a talented documentarian he's the guy who directed cartel land and city of ghosts but that has already been released onto the national geographic channel so that is eligible for me to review so both of those have been added to the urgent list There's also still a handful of streaming films I want to get to before the end of the year. There's the British indie film Lapwing about a group of gypsies trying to flee England or being expelled from England in 1555 and getting involved in a local religious community. There's also Daniel Bruhl directing himself in Next Door playing a fictionalised version of himself 
just about to head off to Hollywood, but before leaving has a drink in a local bar and gets into an argument with an ageing residence about the gentrification of Berlin. There's also the micro-budget American film I am curious about called What She Said, about a rape victim who decides not to pursue her case because she's just had enough of it, tries to run away to her remote cabin, but her brother and various friends try and perform an intervention and try and persuade her to actually pursue her rape case. But that sounds like a, a complicated situation, but does sound interesting. And also added to the list is a streaming film I've come across, which looks rather interesting. It's called The Great and Terrible Day of the Lord, and is another one of these micro-budget American indie films, which is basically shot by two people in a cabin. And it has a really, really interesting premise. A young man and woman go up to a remote cabin for a romantic weekend, but once they get there, the man starts saying to his girlfriend, by the end of this weekend, you will be dead. But I'm God, so if you start worshipping me, you will survive. So is this a man having a breakdown? Is this a dangerously manipulative man playing with the emotions of his girlfriend? Or is there genuinely something supernatural or religious going on? And as far as I can tell, it's just these two people in this cabin over this weekend trying to figure out if if the man is God which sounds like it might be absolutely fascinating. Equally, it sounds like it might be a pretentious load of bollocks, very much like The Last Days of Capitalism was, but I'm still willing to give this a go, and that has been added to the list before I lock down my top 10 films of the year list. On Netflix, we still have the lightly Oscar-baity film The Starling, in which Melissa McCarthy and Chris O'Dowd have to deal with grief over the death of their child. There's also the Italian film The Hand of God, directed by Paolo Sorrentino and based on his own youth growing up in Naples. That's only on the list because it has made the international feature long list, but as I repeatedly say, I don't like the work of Paolo Sorrentino, so I'm going to put myself through that probably the next time I'm heading over to Bristol to watch the tragedy of Macbeth at the watershed. And if I have time, possibly even on the way back from Bristol at the watershed, the other Italian film on Netflix I do want to check out is Yara, a true crime movie about a female prosecutor who becomes obsessed with the disappearance of a 13-year-old girl in her small Italian town. So that looks like it might be cool. And on the fun end of things, I still want to check out the spooky movie Night Teeth, which is basically collateral-only vampires. And I'm also kind of curious about the young... uh, Is it a YA novel or a YA film? It it certainly looks like it might be. It's a film called Mixtape, in which a teenage girl, a teenage orphan girl, 
finds a mixtape that has been left behind by her dead mother. And when it breaks, she has to track down all the really obscure tracks on this mixtape and recreate it in order to reconnect with her mother. So that could be fun, but equally could be mawkish sentimental crap. But I'm still curious about mixtape. And that is the highest priorities of stuff I've got on my to-watch list. I still have my July 4 play to do. I mean, at this point, I might not even get around to it at all, because as I said a bit earlier, I have started working on my top 10 films of the year show, and eventually I will need to also work on my top 10 Netflix films of the year show, and also my personal raw footage awards. So all of those end-of-year shows uh, I need to start seriously thinking about. But in the meantime, a reminder that there were two yays in this particular episode. The Oscar, or the heavy Oscar contenders available on Netflix. Tick, Tick, Boom is a brilliant musical about the creative process, about the struggles of creativity, the pressures of art and you know, the AIDS epidemic living in New York in the late 1980s, early 1990s. But yeah, Tick, Tick, Boom is excellent with fantastic performances from Andrew Garfield and Robin De Jesus, and I do thoroughly recommend it. As I do Don't Look Up, which is so, so blunt, but it needs to be. I think Don't Look Up absolutely works. I think sometimes you need to shake people by the lapels and say, look at what's happening. And that's exactly what Don't Look Up does. And speaking of Don't Look Up, as I promised a little earlier, I will be playing out with the song from Don't Look Up, performed by Ariana Grande and Kid Cudi. It is called Just Look Up. A little bit of context for this song. This song appears in the film at a point where every sane person realises that this comet is coming, the world is coming to an end. And Ariana Grande and Kid Cudi, their on-again, off-again relationship, has been the distraction which has kept people paying attention to this world-destroying comet. And I do actually give Ariana Grande credit for this film because... Her portrayal of a vapid, famous singer is a little bit close to the knuckle. I think she's mildly poking fun at herself, and credit to her for that. But the song is excellent. It starts out as a pretty traditional love ballad, but takes a serious left turn after the Kid Cudi break. And the second half of the song, sung by Ariana Grande, is excellent. And I do really hope that it ends up getting nominated for Best Song. But that is what will be playing out this episode. But before then, all that remains for me to say is this has been Yay, Nay or Mare, presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I've been host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. And I'll see you next time where I shine a light on cinema, both obvious and obscure. Mm-hmm. I 
had the speed of sound Riding against our lines but sown against ourselves You haunted every memory With no goodbye sound Bad for me Your pride put out the fire in the flames Then just one look is all it takes I feel your eyes that locked on every part of me And then my dumb heart says Just look Is get your head 